The voice of Motown, West Virginia's leader in news, analysis, and rumors, proudly presents the Voice of Motown podcast, featuring your boys, Brandon and Tyler. Take it away, gentlemen. Welcome to today's podcast, March 8th, 2022. This is the Voice of Motown podcast. I'm Tyler Pepe. And I'm Brandon Cork, and this is a WVU sports podcast by two suffering WVU fans. All right, lots of topics to discuss today. WVU basketball, the new West Virginia Mountaineer, draft combine news, and many others. Plus, part four of our top 50 West Virginia football players of the 21st century. But before we get into all of that, we want to remind all of you to follow our social media accounts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Just look for the Voice of Motown podcast. And that is a separate account from Brad's Voice of Motown account. So make sure that you search for the Voice of Motown and the Voice of Motown podcast accounts. Uh, Make sure you give us a follow, a like. And if you're feeling generous, you can send us a donation in the link in our bio here on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. Yeah. And lastly, look for Brandon's articles on the Voice of Motown's website and social media. We greatly encourage everybody listening to reach out and tell us what you like and how we can improve our podcast. We're always trying to get better and your opinion matters to us. So let's jump right into it. Since our last podcast, the Mountaineers fell to the Oklahoma Sooners 72 to 59. But more importantly, West Virginia defeated TCU on senior night to cap off the regular season. Unfortunately, WVU will end the regular season with a losing record officially. They are 15 and 16, but it's great to see those seniors get a win in their final game in Morgantown. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was a great way to end the season. Um, Obviously not the season that we were all hoping for. Um, Disappointing as honestly as a whole, but uh yeah, it was great to see the seniors, um, and it's a big group of them, get that win on the home court. Yeah, 100%. It was great to see three of the seven seniors reach double digits. Taz finished with 25 points, while McNeil and Curry each had 10. Plus, Gabe had a solid game, as always, with 10 rebounds and contributing on both ends of the court. Polycap and Kedrian Johnson had decent games. So it's great to see all of these guys finish out their Mountaineer career in Morgantown with solid performances on their home court. Um, But, you know, just I hate to put a downer on all of that because six of the seven did fantastic. But Kerrigan was the only guy who didn't see a lot of playing time in his final home game. He only played one minute. And um, we've kind of seen him really phased out of the rotation lately. Do you think that's more due to how Kerrigan has played? Do you think it's due to the emergence of Isaiah Cottrell's game lately? Or do you think Kerrigan's one of those guys that Bob Huggins keeps calling out in his press conferences? Uh, I think he's the the last option you gave. Um, you know, watching Kerrigan from the beginning of the season to now, he's really the same guy. I mean, he's an athletic guy who you know, chases blocks defensively, offensively relies on kind of lobs, doesn't really have any sort of post game or any other sort of other option out there. Um, He's a tremendous athlete and he had all the potential in the world, I think, to be a real contributor, especially as a guy who maybe not necessarily is a scorer offensively, but someone who grabbed a lot of offensive rebounds with the right technique and positioning. 
Um, but throughout the season, he never really worked on that. Um, and especially with his athleticism too, he could have been someone who was a little bit more of a consistent inside scorer, being able to get up over some of the smaller or less athletic bigs in the big 12, which there, to be fair, there aren't very many, but you know, I definitely felt like there could have been a bigger role for him. And, uh, you know, there were certain matchups where Huggins tried him a little bit more. Um, you know, I'm thinking of teams like Baylor and Oklahoma State that play a little bit more of an athletic forward down there. But even in those games, he really couldn't keep up. So um, for someone who last year at um, Central Florida played so well, especially defensively and rebounding the ball and being an efficient inside scorer, although limited, um you know, just seeing him kind of be the same guy, but less effective against better competition is very disappointing. Yeah, I would have to agree. I mean, you look at guys like Malik Curry or Polly Polycap, who, um, you know, they had their struggles at certain points during the year, but it seems like that final stretch of the regular season, they really started to find their groove and, and be good contributors. I mean, they, they definitely earned their time on the court. Um, but yeah, I think it's a little bit of both of what we mentioned. I think um, Isaiah Cottrell has been playing well as an overall game, not just, you know, putting points up here and there, but I I just think overall his game has improved. So Coach Huggins is trying to get him on the court more, and I can't blame him for that. Um, But if you look at Kerrigan's minutes throughout the season, it has really fluctuated from start to finish. He'll play 20 minutes one night, and then the next he'll play three. So um, maybe that's why he kind of struggled to find his groove, because like you said, he is tall and he's pretty he gets up and down the court pretty well for his size. Um, But, you know, like you said, he never really found that groove like Polly Capper Curry did. So it's been a really strange year for him. And obviously your opponent will affect who you play on which night for how many minutes. Um, if it's a tall team, you want to bring in your bigs to get a lot of minutes, but Demon Kerrigan, he just had a really interesting single season here at West Virginia. Yeah, definitely. Now on the flip side, you already mentioned it, but Cottrell, the past two games has been great. Um, I've been really impressed with his rebounding. I know, you know, the scoring is still a little iffy there. Um, you know, other aspects of this game can be hit or miss, but I was really encouraged to see he had 12 rebounds in the past two games and he only played a combined 40 minutes. Um, and that's a lot better than what he had been doing the previous big 12 matches where he'd be lucky to grab two rebounds. So that's really encouraging. Um, hopefully, you know, he's around for next year. Um, I think he could have a huge role, um, because he's definitely shown some real progression over the last five or six games. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Um, it's really encouraging what we've seen from Isaiah Cottrell and um, Jalen Bridges these last few weeks of the season. Hopefully we have them back next year because there are just so many question marks going into next year since Coach Huggins has to replace so many important guys. And just having those two back and knowing what they can bring to the table will help us a lot because if we lose those two guys, man, I mean, next season is just a, a blank slate and it's you know, I don't know how I would feel going into it. It would, you really would have no predictions because most of the guys who would be playing next year without those two, you would, you wouldn't know a whole lot about them. Yeah. And and the Bridges point, you know, it's definitely seems like it's a lot more mercury than it needs to be. I mean, he's a local guy who um, has played well in stretches during the season. You know, I think the last two games have been kind of I know he's been efficient, but have been kind of concerning to me from a scoring standpoint where he's only had 
um, 15 points in two games. He's had eight shots in the past two games combined. Um, you know, I'm not sure what's going on with him because, you know, it seems like there are times where Huggins takes him out, doesn't play him a lot of minutes occasionally over the past six or so games. And him and his dad have been very vocal on social media, which, you know, can be indicative of something or it could just be people uh, venting. So I'm not sure how to read the situation. But um, as we've said before, he's one player I'm worried about um, because I do think despite kind of his lack of aggressiveness in scoring this season, um, there's a lot of opportunity for him to be that guy next year. And I know we said that at the beginning of this year, but I mean, if no one else is taking shots, maybe a flip switches or a switch flips. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've talked about Jalen all season that I think he's, he's the most talented player on this team. He just, uh, he has to show it, but he's still very young. He's a sophomore. And, um, you know, I don't see any reason why he wouldn't return. He's a local guy. And it can be his team next year. I mean, everyone who was a leader, who you would consider a leader this year, is more than likely going to be gone because there's only a couple guys who could even possibly come back. And we'll get into that a little later. Um, But since the regular season ended, let's give a big shout out to the possible MVP for all home games this season. And that's the WVU fans in a year where West Virginia ended the regular season going two and 14 um, to end the year on that final stretch. The Mountaineer fans still continuously showed up to games and even sold out two of those games during that rough patch. So they, they made every game loud and did their best to give our players the home court advantage. So I want to give a shout out to the fans one last time for this season, for always showing up, whether our Mountaineers are winning or losing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it definitely wasn't an easy season to, to watch at times to cheer on the Mountaineers, but, you know, it's great to see that, you know, the students and everyone else are so dedicated and um, willing to, to cheer through even the the hardest of times. So again, like Tyler said, kudos to all of you. That's fantastic to see. Yeah. 100%. Um, We just had some recent news about some players getting some recognition. You ready to dive into that? Yeah, let's go for it. All right. Gabe Osaboyan was named, Co-Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year, sharing it with players from Baylor and Oklahoma State. So that's the first time in Big 12's history that three players tied for that award. And Gabe finished his senior year with five points per game, 5.6 rebounds, 1.6 assists, and 1.2 steals, plus the numerous charges he took and all the little things that don't always show up on a stat sheet that Gabe is famous for doing. So much deserved for Gabe. What do you think? Oh, yeah, definitely deserved. And the one thing that I thought was interesting, just looking at his uh, season-long stats, is he only averaged 18 minutes a game. So if you look at him as a guy who's playing 35, 36 minutes a night, like a lot of full-time players do um, on WVU, his stats would prorate out to 10 points, 11 rebounds, 3.2 assists, 1.2 blocks, and 2.4 steals per game, which is absolutely incredible. You know, those the the numbers that, you know, his actual per game averages don't seem to stick out much. But when you talk about someone who's only on the court for 18, 19 minutes a game and he's making that kind of impact, it's really incredible what he's done. And, you know, that doesn't even take into account his energy, his emotion, um, his leadership that he shows on the court. Um, his willingness to do things that really aren't in his wheelhouse and creating offense whenever the offense is struggling. 
Um, he has been the one bright spot basically in every game uh, for WVU this season. And um, yeah, I don't know how Huggins is going to replace a guy like him because even though Huggins always does seem to come to find a defensive specialist, um, having a defensive specialist who's six foot seven athletic and has the heart that Gabe has uh, is very, very tough to find. Yeah, I, I mean, he's one of a kind. You can get guys similar to him, but it's going to be really hard to find someone just like him. And uh, you mentioned the the minutes per game. I know there were some games he got into trouble with Coach Huggins and didn't play a lot, but a lot of that's probably his own doing for getting into foul trouble. But, um, I mean, that's just Gabe. He plays so aggressive. That's what makes him special and, and put up all these stats we just mentioned. So um, you wouldn't want to discourage that. Um, he's just one of a kind, but, uh, moving on from Gabe, he wasn't the only one who got recognized. Taz Sherman was named to the second team, all big 12. He finished the regular season with 18 points per game. And that was second only to Kansas's Abaji plus 2.8 rebounds, 2.4 assists and 1.3 steals per game. So he really contributed all around, not just with the scoring, and he was unquestionably the offensive MVP for the Mountaineers this year. So what do you think about Taz? Yeah, I mean, for Taz, you know, it's kind of bittersweet. Um, he had a really good season, but it was a season of, I think, what ifs with him. You know, what if he didn't get COVID? What if, you know, Sean McNeil was a little bit more effective? What if we had another? What, what if Malik Curry was playing the way he's been playing the past 10 games all season? What does that change for Taz and the defenses that he's seeing? Because there's just so much attention that gets thrown at him and he still put up the numbers that he did. Um, you know, his shooting percentages weren't great, but you know, he was taking a beating while doing it, you know, and on top of that, losing weight from COVID um, it's hard to tell if he actually got that weight back by the end of the season. Um, he really battled and he could have given up at the end of the season, but every game he wanted to be the guy, he would still go on stretches where he carried the offense by himself. Um and you have to respect that because that takes a lot of will and a lot of love for the game and the team to be able to fight through all the adversity that he did this year. 100%. And plus, you know, this was only one year he, that he was here at West Virginia. We can look back on all the other successful years where he was a big contributor coming off the bench and scoring a lot. So uh, he just had a solid West Virginia career. And although, you know, everyone wished this season went a little better, um, you know, he just had a great overall stat line while he was here. So he'll definitely be remembered. Lastly, Sean McNeil received an honorable mention. Um, who doesn't love Sean McNeil? He, he's, he's a big fan favorite. And I don't want this to come off as insulting, but I think everybody expected a little more from Sean this year. Um, and I think even he would agree with that. If you think back to last year, we weren't even sure if he was going to return. We thought he might enter his name in the draft and so um, fans were pumped to see him come back we thought we would see huge things from him but his stats were virtually identical really to last year um, even his points per game were 12.2 which is exactly what he averaged last year so um, some he, he did have a few big games but he also had some stretches there where he was um, almost invisible on the offensive side and um you know, a lot of people thought he would have a huge year, but he seemed to be very up and down in conference play, wasn't he? Yeah, I think, you know, and not to say this in a negative connotation, but I think Sean McNeil is who he is. I mean, 
Um, he was never going to get more athletic defensively just because of his, you know, I think his, his build, um, his athleticism. Um, he was never going to become elite. Um, his ball handling was a little kind of scary at times. And he was always kind of just a great catch and shoot guy, you know, and uh, for guys like that, you know, th- there's only so much you can do to, to improve, you know, maybe become super good at making contested shots, which Sean was at time, but he was very much a, a microwave guy. So um, then there's nothing wrong with that. He just peaked early. And, you know, part of it was because of the, the limited offense that we had, the limited offensive sets um, that Huggins runs um, and the limited um, offenses. I mean, he could probably have been like a 15 point a game score if we had someone else who could create shots for him more effectively. But even then, you know, that's still not, I think what some people may have thought coming into the season, you know, I think some fans probably unrealistically thought he would be like an 18, 20 point a game score, but you know, it's hard to do that. You know, even Taz Sherman, who has all the offensive tricks in the books had a hard time doing that. Um, and Ta- and Sean McNeil, who's a, a pull up specialist, um, you know, was te- te- teams figured him out and made his life tough. And yeah, I mean, I still respect Sean. I think he's a great player. I think he's a great shooter, and he's going to make some money probably overseas. But, um, you know, it, it's good to temper expectations, too. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, and the thing is, Sean is actually one of those guys who is still eligible to return next season. He could come back for a second senior year. Um, so I don't know if that's even in his in his thought process right now since last year. You know, we were very lucky to have him even come back. But, um, you know, I think what made him so successful last year uh, was because he he uh, wasn't the second scoring option. It didn't seem like, you know, we had McBride, we had Culver, whereas this year we were just very limited on who we could rely on to get points other than Tash Sherman. So um, teams just kind of locked them down, whereas last year he could uh, be forgotten about here and there because McBride was heating up or someone else. So. I don't know. Maybe it would be good for him to come back next year. Maybe, um, maybe not since there's so many question marks, it's hard to say what he's thinking right now, but with all the uncertainties of West Virginia next year, it would be great for us fans to selfishly have him back. Yeah. I would like to have him back, but I could definitely see why he wouldn't have come back, whether it's, you know, wanting to go overseas and start making some money. He is an older player, I think. Um, or even, you know, transferring and trying to, play on a team where, you know, they run a little bit more of a creative and offensive system Um, because even next year, like you said, you know, the, the question marks on offense are much bigger because Taz was our offense this year. And we're not sure what Seth Wilson and Kobe Johnson and even Jalen Bridges could potentially be and what the offense with them looks like. I mean, maybe he's sold on that. Maybe he feels like he can really excel with those other guys. Um, But, you know, right now I would say it's probably a, 40% 40% chance he comes back. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I could see where he thinks it's not beneficial for him because um, you know, he really needs a true point guard who can uh, make something happen and then get him the ball, which we really lacked this year. So I agree with you. Um, but on the same topic, Kedrian Johnson kind of alluded to possibly using his fifth year of eligibility because he can come back next season as well. So um, much like Sean McNeil, I would love to see Kedrian come back because that's just one guy we know 
who's a solid player and can help some of those younger guys develop. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, I think for Keedy, there there's kind of two key things that I look at if he comes back next year. One is, is he going to have that, you know, jump that Huggins players, uh, Juco players who come in the Huggins system normally have. He, we didn't really see it this year with him, which was the second year, which is when we always see like the Jay Sean Pages, the Tariq Phillips, the, you know, Taz Sherman's kind of spike up and really start producing. Um, so, you know, could next year be that year offensively? Because he needs to be better offensively. I think defensively, he's really, really good, especially for a point guard. But I think with what we've seen this year, um, if he does come back, I would like to see Huggins kind of not play him as much as he did this year and use him more as a kind of primary substitute or off the bench type of guy and really let the young guys thrive. You know, let Kobe and Seth and the uh, freshmen we have coming in really kind of find their way and figure things out. That way, when we get to Big 12 play, those guys are ready um, instead of having to, you know, play with the older guys again and not have anything to turn around into. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 100% with you. He did struggle on offense um, quite a bit this year. I mean, he occasionally had his double-digit scoring games, but uh, they were few and far between. But uh, like you said, he is a solid defensive player, so he would have a lot to bring to this team if he did return. And since he brought it up, I mean, as we know nowadays with players, that doesn't, you know, that's not written in stone. But, uh, you know, any guy who's willing to come back and help these young players, I am all for. Um, so you got anything else on the recap? No, that, that's about all I had. Yeah, that's all I had too. So let's get in to WVU's next game. West Virginia's next game will be Wednesday at seven o'clock against Kansas state in the big 12 tournament. The winner of the game will take on top seeded Kansas on Thursday at three o'clock. Oklahoma state of course is banned from postseason play. So WVU versus K state is a matchup between the eighth and ninth seed in the big 12 tournament. So um, with all that being said, how do you like the Mountaineers in that matchup? Um, I definitely think it's a game we can win. I mean, if you look at the first two matchups, we were one and one. Um, and in the second game, Gabe didn't play. So, and that was only a three point loss, I believe. Um, the first game, you know, you could probably make the same argument for K State. They were shorthanded, they didn't have their head coach. Um, they had a lot of things going against them, especially going on the road against WVU. But that was a game, too, that WVU did something that they didn't do towards the end of the year, and that's battle back. Um, from you know, being down, they were down double digits at halftime. They battled back, closed out the game one by three. Um, and kind of opposite thing happened. Um, whenever they went to K State, um, they were up by double digits until about 16 minutes left in the second half. And then they finished making four field goals throughout the last 16 minutes of the game and blew a double digit lead. Um, and K State ended up winning. So, um, it definitely seems like an even matchup putting Gabe back in the mix definitely seems like something that helps Mountaineers a lot, but K-State has fight and um, it's going to be a close game. I think I do too. Yeah. I think it'll be close um, for each team. I I really do think it's a coin flip. Um, Looking at some of the players K-State has, they have Marquise Noel, um, who is the guy who's who he put a beating on West Virginia the last time these two teams met. He scored 21 points to go along with three steals and three assists. And um, he's been banged up lately. So 
it'll be interesting to see if that plays a factor. Um, but they also have Smith and Pack, who are two capable scorers themselves. To me, the biggest key will be if WVU can continue to score on offense. They have reached 70-plus points in three of their last four games. And the biggest key is just taking quality shots and finishing at the rim. So if the Mountaineers can get their offensive you know, play going, setting them up, finishing at the rim like they have been lately, um, I, I actually really like the Mountaineers' odds in this game. Yeah, definitely. And it, those three guys you outlined – were have been tremendous against WVU, uh, Pack, Noel, and Smith. Um, just for you know context, Pack has scored 33 points, 11 rebounds, and five assists in the two games against WVU. Noel, 31 points, five rebounds, 13 assists, and Mark Smith, uh, 31 points, 18 rebounds, seven assists. And I said this the first time we previewed K State. Mark Smith is six foot five, um, and has 18 boards. So um, really, really kind of an aggressive player. He's a guy I would love, you know, if some way, shape or form, if we could package a few players together, um, and make a trade, I, he's a guy who I think <laughs> I would love to have on WVU. I think he fits hugging style. Um, you know, kind of that gritty undersized player who really plays mean and does a little bit of everything. Um, but you know, to get back to WVU players, you know, the one thing I thought was interesting is Curry, who's been on fire lately, has only scored four points against K-State this year total um, really ineffective. And conversely, Keddy, who we talked about has offensive struggles scored two uh, in double digits, both games. Um, half of his double digit games this season have come against K-State. So um, he's found something that works there. Um, and it's interesting to see, you know, maybe that's something that can uh, continue and maybe we can get Curry going. Cause it seems like he has turned a corner uh, on that little slump he was in towards the middle of big 12 play. Yeah, it really has. He he has played great lately. So um, I would love to see him keep that streak going in uh, the tournament play for sure. But like you said earlier, the Mountaineers, K-State split that regular season um, matchups. West Virginia had a 17-point comeback in early January. Then K-State erased a 10-point second-half lead. So, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see who wins the third matchup. K-State's also on a five-game losing streak, so um, I'm sure their morale's not super high either, but, um, you know, we're not exactly on a roll either. So it's a a great team to play entering the tournament for sure. Yeah, and it's, you know, if we do win, it's really kind of disappointing that we run into Kansas, but, I mean, we kind of did this to ourselves because Kansas has just absolutely beat us down the two times we played this season and you know, it's Kansas. Um, it's really kind of hard to knock them off when it comes to winning the big 12 title, just cause they've done it so many times. Um, but you know, the one hope that I have is that WVU has not beat Kansas this year. And it seems like, you know, Bob Huggins always kinds of finds a way to pull an upset almost every year against Kansas. Um, and you know, who knows what can happen. Maybe Huggins has some, you know, tricks still up his sleeve that he could pull out against Kansas should we beat uh, Kansas State. And then we can say we swept the state of Kansas in the Big 12 tourney. <laughs> hey, I can live with that. that that'll put a good taste in my mouth in the basketball here for sure. Um, all right, so let's move on, guys. Uh, WVU has announced the new Mountaineer. Her name is Mary Roush. She is the third female Mountaineer in West Virginia's history. We had Natalie Tennant in the early 90s. 
and then Rebecca Durst in the late 2000s. So congratulations to Mary. Um, you know, I almost feel bad even bringing this up, but I saw a lot of people coming to her defense online. I guess there was a couple people complaining because she's a female, which of course is ridiculous to have an issue like that in this day and age. It would be nice if we could, you know, just make racist and sexist issues a thing of the past and and just, you know, you're, you're always going to have a few complaints from narrow-minded individuals. Luckily, it's typically the minority who feel that way um, with these things. It's not a lot of people complaining. And I'm going to be honest, I didn't actually see anybody complaining myself. I only saw the people rushing to her defense. So, um I don't know about you. I don't know if you actually saw someone say something negative. Um, I actually did not, but I did see a lot of people sticking up for her. So what are your thoughts about Mary being named the new Mountaineer? Yeah, I'm completely fine with it. I mean, you know, I think it makes sense to, you know, be equal. I mean, you know, if you want to have a black Mountaineer one year, that'd be great, too. I mean, they can grow beards, you know, so, <laughs> um, you know, th th there's really no qualifications that means that you know, the Mountaineer has to be some big, burly, bearded white guy. Um, it's just kind of, you know, I think the trend just because West Virginia is pre predominantly white. Um, and that's just kind of the demographic that we get here. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's great to, to have a female in there. I think she'll do a great job. I mean, obviously she beat out the rest of the competition. And that's what it is to get the Mountaineer position is the competition. And it's, you know, can you hype up the crowd? Can you play the part? Um, you know, it's kind of like an acting gig and, you know, I'm sure she'll be great. Um, I have no concerns with it and, uh, I'm excited to see her come out. Um, what would it be your first game game day? Um, not pit, but, uh, whatever game we have after that on Mountaineer field. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. We've had two females before they did fine jobs. And like you said, it's all about equality. If she can do the job, which I'm sure she can, then. And who cares? I mean, we're all supposed to be supporting our Mountaineers and that's what it's all about. Doesn't matter if it's a male or female in the costume. Like, I don't know. Like I said, I, I just wish issues like this would go away. It seems silly to be, you know, in this day and age still talking about stuff like this. But um, yeah, we just wanted to give Mary a shout out and bring that up. I hope everyone listening has nothing but good things and well wishes for Mary. So let's move on. Uh, West Virginia added a player in the transfer portal this week. It was announced that Parker Grothaus will be transferring from Florida State to West Virginia. Um, Parker is a senior, and he was a kickoff specialist for the Seminoles this past season. With Evan Staley graduating and Casey Lake still here at WVU, I think it's safe to say, you know, that'll be his role here as well. He'll just be a kickoff specialist. But um, that's a much-needed role for the Mountaineers. So how do you feel about our new kicker? Yeah, I'm excited about it because we've needed someone who can kick the ball into the end zone. And uh, he has a proven track record of doing so. Um, while he was at Florida State, 89 of his 168 kickoffs were touchbacks, which is uh, over 50%. And then last year, 29 of his 62 were touchbacks, um, which is just under 50%. But just for comparison, WVU had 68 kickoffs last year, and only 12 of them went into the end zone, which is only 17%. So assuming something catastrophic doesn't happen with Parker, um, we should see some improvement on the depth of our kickoffs. 
Yeah. And to me, I, I think that's a big deal. You know, most people who are casuals just think, you know, it's just a kickoff. It doesn't matter. But I believe West Virginia allowed a touchdown on a kickoff last year. And there was a few times, you know, they didn't give up a touchdown, but it was pretty close. Like the opposing team took it into our red zone. And, um, you know, West Virginia hasn't exactly had a great offense the past few years. So when you're putting that much pressure on our defense, who has played well, you know, you're already putting yourself behind the eight ball. So um, I'm excited as well. I think Parker will be a great addition. And if he can put that in the back of the end zone more times than not, I think it'll help our team out a lot. Um, I saw he even kicked occasionally for Florida State when they needed him. I mean, Casey Leg was 19 of 23 last year. He was great. But, um, you know, if for whatever reason there's an injury or they need him to fill in, he can fill in there as well. So I, I really don't see any downside on bringing him to the team. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you can never have too many kickers. I know, you know, there are times where we remember as fans where the kicking game was just atrocious and you couldn't really rely on anyone to go out there. Um, so, you know, you were like, oh, fourth and three from the 35. We should probably go for it. Fourth and two from the 21. We should probably go for it. Um, it's good to have someone who's reliable out there to kick. And God forbid something bad happens to the kicker, whether he gets pulls a muscle or gets roughed up um, and can't go back out there. It's college. A lot of these kids aren't on scholarship. I think Parker might be. Um, so, you know, it's good to have someone else out there that we can rely on uh, who may not be as prolific as K Casey Leg, but can go out there and step into the role and make a 35 yarder if need be. Yeah, 100%. And I saw he was a walk-on at Florida State initially, but earned that scholarship. So, um, yeah, I would assume he has one here, but uh, that's a good question. I'm not 100% sure. Yeah. So, moving on, some sad news to report. West Virginia safety St. McLeod was a victim in a stabbing incident Saturday night in Morgantown. The reports say there was a verbal altercation at the bank on High Street. Um, if you're not familiar, the bank is a bar slash restaurant down there on High Street. And the situation apparently escalated and moved outside. And that is where the assault took place. St. McLeod was taken to the hospital and reportedly suffered wounds on his back and stomach. He has Already had his surgery, and um, from everything I read, luckily, it appears he's going to make a full recovery. It, it's very sad news for sure, but it sounds like it could have been a lot worse. So um, I'm happy that it, it seems like he'll be back to normal um, sooner than later. Yeah, definitely. And, it, you know, I think this is the time to announce that uh, we will be shifting our focus from a WV Sports podcast to a True Prime guy true crime podcast <laughs> to find who this guy in the gray puffy jacket is but um i joke but uh yeah it's terrible um sorry to make light of a pretty serious situation but you know um it, it sounds like you know he should be okay it sounded like the injuries were pretty rough um i just hope he ends up being okay if he has to miss time that's the least of my concern right now um it's just kind of scary that, that that's happening on high street i mean that's a place that's pretty busy even at 1 in the morning there are people around, there are security guards around. And, you know, whenever I went to college there, I never really felt scared walking down high street or worried that I was end up going to get jumped or stabbed, even if I got into an argument with someone. Um, so I hope that, you know, the, the bouncers around town, the police officers are in town are really kind of keeping an eye on this and making sure that Morgantown stays safe. I mean, cause it, it happens to a football player, so it's prominent, but 
you know, God forbid it happens to a young woman or a young man who's just walking by trying to get some DP dough late at night, if that's still in town, because I know that's what I would be doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's definitely scary. It's unfortunate that stuff like this happens, but um, it does. So uh, you, you just got to be careful and, and try to keep cool heads while you're out. Uh, but we wish St. McLeod a speedy recovery. And um, at the time of recording this podcast, the last I read about the situation, they're still looking for the suspects. So hopefully um, he's brought in as well and uh, brought to justice because, you know, that that's a horrible situation. And there is a, a open market there for West Virginia WVU true crime podcast spinoff, the voice of Motown. <laughs> there Owen, you go. True crime. <laughs> Yeah, I'm into it. Let's do that. Uh, all right, uh, moving on. Last week, Letty Brown participated in the NFL Draft Combine. Unfortunately for Letty, who is a West Virginia fan favorite, you know, you won't find too many people who dislike Letty Brown. Um, he didn't perform very well. He ran a 4.64 40 time, which is 26 out of 27 running backs who participated. His vertical jump and broad jump weren't much better, and he is now projected to go either undrafted or, at the very highest, a late, late round pick is what they're projecting. Um, being drafted doesn't mean Letty can't succeed in the NFL. You, there's several successful you know, stories that you hear about guys going undrafted, and then they catch on with the team. But um, I don't know about you, but as a Mountaineer fan, I just thought this was unfortunate to hear. Yeah, definitely. And the one thing, you know, his 40 time did improve from his original time. I think he originally ran like a 473, then it corrected with his official time, got a little bit faster, which was nice to see. Um, and he has more of a power back, so his speed really doesn't matter as much. Um, I really don't think he profiles as kind of like a, a three down back in the NFL or someone who's going to be a, a workhorse. Um, I, I think he'd be a really good backup. Um yeah, you know, it's kind of it kind of sucks to, you know, see that Letty struggled. Um, but the one thing that I was curious to see that he didn't test that was um, any of the agility drills, because that's something that I think matters a lot more um, than the drills that he did participate in. So hopefully at Pro Day, he gets to participate in that and show that he does have some really good um, short area quickness, because in the, the NFL, you know, you look at someone like you know, even Le'Veon Bell, who didn't have great breakaway speed, but his intermediate quickness was just so good that he could read the whole adapt and then get through it. I'm not saying Letty could be that type of running back because that's an elite, elite running back when he was in his prime. But, you know, you can really carve out a role um, and maybe even start a season or two as a fill-in um, if you have that, that, that quickness. And I do think Letty has some quickness to him along with power. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, you know, Letty was just an easy guy to root for when he was at West Virginia. It seemed like he never complained. Uh, he was a good teammate from all accounts, Mountaineer fans, you know, want to see him succeed. So hopefully he can do something to raise his stock before the actual draft. Like we said, um, you know, even if he goes undrafted, it doesn't mean a team won't pick him up and uh, fall in love with his game because he is a hard worker. And that's really what makes you know, this news so heartbreaking because we all know he works hard and, and that he wants this. So uh, we wish nothing but the best for him. Yeah. And another kind of saving grace for him too, not to, you know, harp on this for too long, but you know, the one thing that he really excelled at in college was scoring touchdowns. And it seems like the NFL, 
either goes after complete freak running backs who are built like a truck or they go smaller guys because they can catch passes and they have softer hands. So those teams who have the smaller backs, you know, you think of the Chiefs with Clyde Edwards Hilaire. He's like five six. He's not scoring from the, the two yard line. You know, you bring in a guy like Letty, he's gonna score from the two yard line. So maybe that's the niche he can carve out. Um, like kind of like LeGarrette Blunt did with New England years ago. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair point. Um, yeah, hopefully we got some good news to report on him in the incoming upcoming months. So we'll see. Yeah. Um, so to close out our uh you know football current football topic. Uh, the one thing I was kind of thinking about recently was, you know, with all the transfer portal news and talk and that exodus of players from WVU and also a lot of other schools is, you know, kind of rethinking about how Dana approached recruiting at WVU. Um, you know, he got a lot of heat because he focused primarily on transfers and junior college guys. Um, and, you know, a lot of the fans and everyone else kind of thought that, Hey, you know, why don't we go for some of these high school kids? We have more time to develop them. Um, obviously, part of it was because of Dana's work ethic and not necessarily wanting to go in and put the work in with these young kids. But I think another approach was because he got more of a finished product with some of these transfers and these JUCO kids. He knew what he was getting. He didn't have to put the work in for the development. He just had to put the refinement on him. And that worked, you know, off and on for Dana. He had some really good seasons. He had some really bad seasons where he didn't hit. But you know, thinking back on it with how prevalent the portal is, um, is that the way WV should lean more into? Or do you think that still focusing on high school recruits as a primary method of bringing guys in is the way to go? It's a really good question. And it's, it's hard to find a definitive answer because Dana was definitely ahead of the times in his strategy. Um, I'm not sure if it was the right thing to do at the time at WVU because that strategy kind of left our football program bare bone when he left. Um, however, with the way players so quickly transfer nowadays, it is a great way to snag players who can play immediately and easily fill spots. So I would definitely say a guy like Dana has an advantage in this area because he's been doing it so long. And I mean, we're, we're seeing it already. I mean, Houston had a pretty good year last year. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't know. I think coach Brown will adapt quickly. If that is the future, he's an excellent recruiter. I mean, that has never been a knock on coach Brown. The knock has always been, um, you know, coaching up these recruits on the offensive side of the ball. So I don't know. I think they'll figure it out. I, th- I think there's a sweet spot somewhere in the middle where you want a little bit of both. Cause like we said, you don't want to be bare boned with depth every year, but at the same time uh, you're going to need to fill positions quickly. Kind of um, like we need to now in a few spots since we've had some big names transfer lately. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I definitely think a coach like Graham Harrell is going to greatly improve um, that knock on coach Brown. And kudos to Coach Brown for being smart enough to admit that, that he needs to bring in a a great offensive mind to really help him build up these young guys. But um, I know I kind of walked around the answer there, but I don't know what it is. I I think coaches are still trying to figure this out because it's a new college football. Yeah. And and what made me kind of think of the question, too, was I was watching a video with Deion Sanders being interviewed. I think it was probably on Barstool or something. And he was talking about, you know, how he's the coach at Jackson State. He was saying, you know, 
we're only recruiting like five high school kids now where the rest is going through the portal just because it's cheaper. It's easier. You kind of know what you got and you have so many players who come into a college for one year, they're promised one thing and the portal just makes it so convenient. So you go out there, you can, you know, visit an Alabama, you can visit an Auburn, you can visit a Texas and say, Hey, you know, you're in the portal. You were a five-star last year. You didn't get to play, come play for us. Um, you know, so it makes it a little bit easier that way, just because it's so easy for players to move now, which has its positives and negatives. I mean, players should be able to move just as coaches do, but, um, you know, there needs to be some guardrails around it to, to stop it. Cause I don't think the NCAA meant to have the, the transfer portal to be a way for schools to recruit. You know, I think they meant it for a way for players to move. Um, and, you know, Dion made a great point where it is, you know, you have three recruiting sources. Now you have high school, you have Juco and you have the transfer portal. And the transfer portal was probably the way that you get the best talent. Um, you know, and that's just kind of how it is. And, you know, a school like WVU, um, I just hope it doesn't become a stepping stone. And if it does become a stepping stone for some of these younger high school kids who get in here, you know, they fall in love with the program for a year and maybe it's NIL, maybe it's playing time, maybe it's system, maybe they get beat out by someone and they don't want to hang around for another year to earn that spot. Um, if those guys continue to transfer out the way that they do and, you know, it kind of seems like this may be an anomaly for WVU, but it could just be schools that are like WVU who are facing this type of issue. Um, if you're going after transfers, if you're going after JUCO kids more primarily, then those guys have a shorter runway to get their time in to, you know, get to the pros or get their time in as a starter. So um, definitely has its positive and negatives, but um, you know, it's just interesting to think about, especially as over the next couple of years when, um, WVU's player retention is really in question. It is. And, um, you know, I know it's easy to say, but I think the biggest way to put a bandaid on all of this is to just start winning. I mean, if you just win, you attract not only high school guys, but you're going to attract transfers as well, because when you're winning a lot, you're getting bigger exposure. That's what these guys want. Um, and ticket sales go up, you know, the money is getting thrown around a little bit when winning is going on. So I know that's really easy to say, but I think if Coach Brown can, you know, pull it all together, he's been here, um, what, going into his fourth season next year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think these next couple years are going to say a lot. If he can start bringing a winning tradition to this program, guys are going to come and they're going to oh. want to play for him. Yeah, I think the next two years are going to be huge because – you know, like you said, that that's the time where you're going to have to win. I think there's still a lot of talent on the team. Obviously, some significant holes to fill. But if you can win, you know, eight games in two years from now, I think that puts you in a really strong spot. Um, I think you can retain some of the players that are on here and they don't start looking around and seeing if there's greener grass somewhere else. Um, because then you kind of get into the question of what comes first, the players or the wins kind of a quick chicken and egg question. Do you need the players to win or do you need the, the wins to get players? And then you're kind of stuck in some sort of purgatory that as a coach, you're probably stuck in. And unfortunately we'd probably have to find a new head coach then. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm 100% with you. All right, guys, moving on. Um, We are going to do our rankings 25 to 21 for the top 50 football players at West Virginia of the 21st century. And, um, you know, the further we get into the 
this list, we're getting into some really, really memorable players. So let's get into it. Number 25, Keith Tandy. Keith Tandy played cornerback at West Virginia from 2008 to 2011. He was a three-year starter and filled up the stat sheets during that time. Tandy finished his career with 13 interceptions, eight tackles for a loss, and nearly 200 tackles. In his junior season, he was tied fifth nationally for pass deflections at 17 and tied 10th nationally for interceptions at six. That same year, he earned the first team All-Big East. And, uh, you know, Keith Tandy was just a highly talented playmaker who also went on to have a good NFL career as well. Oh, for sure. I mean, the one thing I loved about about Keith, Can- Keith, Keith Tandy, uh, tough to say, um, was that not only was he reliable in coverage, but like you said, he was a willing tackler and he could make some really big hits. Um you know, great hands, really aware of what was going on. He was kind of like a quarterback in the secondary. And that's rare to find from someone who plays cornerback because a lot of the times your leaders defensively are at linebacker, at safety. Um, And he really, you know, kind of as a product of the defense did play a little bit more off ball on the outside corner, but his awareness and his ability to make tips and um, catch tips and make breaks on the balls were just so fantastic. Um, one of the great things about him too, that just kind of goes to show, you know, why he was so successful is he was a three-time Big East academic all-star. So he was really smart and you could tell by the way he played the football, the game. Um, one time he was a two-time first team, all Big East, a second team, all American in 2010. Um, that was his junior year. And, you know, like you said, a solid NFL career where he played, um, he was drafted by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and played six seasons with them accumulating 156 career tackles, eight interceptions, and 14 pass deflections in his career. Um, He did play primarily safety for them, so he did make a position switch, but um, didn't start a lot, but he did play, and uh, he was successful. Yeah, yeah, and also um, he was a coach for the Super Bowl-winning Buccaneers in the 2020-21 season, so – just good for him. I mean, he's had success everywhere he went, college, pros, coaching. And um, like you said, not only a great talent, but a great student as well during his time at WVU. So shout out to Keith Tandy. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, maybe, you know, it's always interesting to see how these careers pop up because, you know, as we get further and further into this list, it seems like some of our more successful players are, are getting into coaching. And, you know, even though he's in the NFL now, um, you know, maybe there's a potential for Keith Tandy to hook up with WVU sometime in the future as a defensive backs coach, defensive coordinator, special teams coach, depending on which way his career takes him, because he's definitely smart. He understands the game and you could tell, like, you know, like we said, how he reads the field and understands what he needs to do defensively to, to make a play. Um, it was special because, you know, there are some guys who just lock down guys. There are guys who just play the position and there are guys who go out there and make plays and over the past few years at WVU, we haven't really had a playmaker. You know, we had Tyke Smith, um, and that's really been the last one over the past three or four years. Um, so you kind of, you know, don't want to take playmaking for granted because it is a really special skill, and Keith Dandy had that in spades. Yeah, 100%. And what I'm noticing, um, the more we, like, research these former players, of course you remember most of what they did while they were here playing, 
but a lot of these guys have gone on to become very good coaches. So you bring up a good point. I mean, it would be awesome if we could bring back one of these former Mountaineers. Of course, down the road, we're happy with the coaches we have now. But, um, you know, if one of these guys want to come back and coach at West Virginia, I mean, that would just be perfect full circle. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, there's no better recruiting experience, you know, as a college coach to say, hey, I played in the league for six years. I mean, that, that that's cool because that's what that's where every player, when they get that D1 scholarship, they think they can end up you know, getting out there on the NFL one day and to, to have someone who's been there, done that teaching you is a huge selling point. Um, so, you know, Keith Dandy was the all time greats and to kind of close this out. What I have for him is a memorable play. Um, it was kind of hard to pick with all the interceptions he had. Um, so, you know, I went with one of his bigger hits, which was a hit on DJ Woods from Cincinnati in 2010. Um, Cincinnati was throwing a screen pass on third and two to DJ Woods, um, Keith Dandy read it from the snap, went up there and hit the ball just as the ball arrived. Clean shot, no head contact, um, just straight to the chest, um, broke up the pass. And unfortunately, DJ Woods ended up, you know, getting the wind knocked out of him, getting hurt a little bit. But, you know, making that read on the snap and reacting that quickly just epitomizes what Keith Dandy did and how good he was. Yeah, 100%. I was shocked to see how many tackles he had on his career. Uh, for a corner so like you said earlier he definitely wasn't afraid to make contact um coming in at number 24 we're going offensive line we got mark lowinski mark did not take the conventional path in his career he was a two-year starter and second team all-american for lackawanna junior college before transferring into west virginia mark redshirted his first year but then earned a spot on the starting roster. He was a starting guard at West Virginia from 2013 to 2014. And as a senior, Mark earned first team all Big 12 honors. He blocked for successful West Virginia running backs such as Charles Sims and Wendell Smallwood. Um, and I love reading about guys like Mark because it just proves athletes don't always have to take the traditional path to be successful. He was a hard worker and it shows because now he is playing on Sundays in the NFL due to that great work ethic. Yeah. And I just wanted to point out too, that uh, Lackawanna junior college, that is the pipeline that Dana opened up. And that's where we got some really, really talented guys from um, Kevin white, Kazir white, um, I, Karun white. I, I can't figure out how to pronounce his name right at this time, but you know, uh, the White Brothers and Mark Lewinsky, it's a, it's a great group of guys to have coming from such a, you know, rural Eastern PA, um, not someplace that you would expect to find all that talent, but Dana kind of mined it out of there and got some really good ones. And like you said, you know, I, I have Mark Lewinsky on here, um, not so much as for his time at WVU, which was really solid, but, you know, other than the one first team, all big 12, you know, kind of didn't hear too much from him. He was just solid. He was quiet. And that's kind of what you want from your offensive lineman. But, you know, whenever he went to the NFL, he was drafted in the fourth round. He earned a starting position on the Seattle Seahawks, um, ended up getting cut because um, they didn't want to play him as a backup from what it sounded like. Um, he lost his starting job to one guy. They had someone else at the other side and they just drafted someone else as the backup. So they were just like, we're going to cut you. Um, but that ended up being to the benefit of the Indianapolis Colts, who, you know, as you may know, have one of the best run attacks in the um, NFL and Jonathan Taylor, um, one of the most 
outstanding seasons, um, you know, borderline MVP candidate. Um, and Mark Lewinsky was one of those guys blocking for him. Um, so, you know, he's really made a career out there. He hasn't got any Pro Bowl nods yet, which kind of surprised me because he's been really good. Um, but, you know, he's still early in his career. He just signed a contract extension. Um, so he's making a living and he's definitely seems like he's going to have a real nice long NFL career. Yeah, 100%. He has 74 career NFL starts already. So, um, you know, Mountaineer fans can be proud to say he attended WVU. And it's always fun to see former Mountaineers in the NFL. And it seems like we do have a decent amount of offensive linemen um, there and contributing. Absolutely. All right. Do you have anything else for Mark? No, that's what I had. Yeah, that's all I had too. So moving on to 23, we got Nick, Nick Kowinski. I hope I pronounced that right. Kwiatkowski. Kwiatkowski. All right. I was, I was working on that earlier. I knew I would butcher it. So um, Nick played at West Virginia from 2012 to 2015, and he was a starter at linebacker for his last three seasons while at WVU. Nick compiled nearly 300 tackles, six sacks, six interceptions, and 28 tackles for a loss, which is tied for 16th all-time at West Virginia. He made the first team All-Big 12 as a senior, and now you can catch him playing on Sundays as well for the Las Vegas Raiders. So shout out to Nick. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, Nick, when he played, was definitely one of my favorite Mountaineers. I mean... He was just the guy who at times, you know, I think the first couple of years, WV wasn't very good, but he was a guy who really provided stability in the middle of the defense. Um, he led the team in tackles for three consecutive years. He led the th them in tackles for loss for his last two years. Um, and he was someone who wasn't just kind of that traditional middle linebacker that I think we're all familiar with, a guy who's just a run stopper. Um, he made plays in the pass game. He got pass deflections. He has six career interceptions. He was a playmaker and he was so smart. Um, you know, it really seemed like every time he was near the ball, he was going to bring the guy down. Anytime we needed a big tackle, he was there. Um, you know, just it's always fun to watch guys who are really, really smart football players. You know, he wasn't the greatest athlete, but he looked a lot faster because of how smart and how he processed the game, just like Keith Thandy did. Um, so, you know, I, I just absolutely loved Nick Quidikowski, he was fantastic. Um, and the the voters did as well. Um, second team, all Big 12 in 2013. Big 12 honorable mention in 2014. First team, all Big 12 in 2015. And All-American in 2015 as voted by Pro Football Focus. So, um, you know, it's not the AP, but PFF thought of him as good enough to be an All-American. So I wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, for sure. And uh, Kudakowski was drafted by the Bears in the fourth round. He played four seasons there, you know, kind of a little bit here and there starting, but most mostly a backup. But he's he has since found a nice role for the Las Vegas Raiders these past two seasons. Unfortunately, he got hurt at the end of last season, but um, hopefully he makes a full recovery and, um, you know, continues having a big role for them. And um, lastly, his 205 solo tackles are 13th all time at West Virginia. So, you know, just a stat sheet filler the whole time he was here. Yeah, I was wondering where he ranked because the list I was looking at only went to like seven or something. So I was wondering where he finished all time because 
you know, those three seasons he had, he had, you know, 85 plus for three seasons straight. And that's a lot of tackles over a three year period. Um, and he did it in the NFL too. You know, um, those four seasons with the bears he had, he started 25 games, 184 tackles, 13 tackles for a loss, six sacks, four forced fumbles, eight pass deflections. And then with his, um, about one and a half years with the Raiders, he started 12 games, 102 tackles, four tackles for a loss, one sack, one forced fumble, and four pass deflections. So still kind of showing that versatility to not only be a run stopper, but someone who's effective in the pass game as well, which is super important for um, linebackers in today's game. Yeah, 100%. Um, yeah, and Nick Kwiatkowski, sorry I butchered your name at the beginning, buddy. Uh um, but you were a great player at WVU. You got anything else for him? No, I, I was looking for a memory, but like, you know, just watching his highlights, like nothing is like spectacular. It's just smart, you know? Um, and, and it's hard to call those, you know, my opinion, a, a memorable moment just because it's, you know, everything out there is just like, you know, yeah, that's what he should be doing. But you kind of take that for granted. Um, it's amazing how much, you know, just playing really smart football and being exceptional at that. Um, is so valuable because, you know, we've seen it in years past where we have guys who are average to blow average linebackers and they just get lost on the play. And you're like, why didn't you make that tackle with Nick in the middle? You never had to worry about that because he was making the tackle when he was making the right play. Yeah. And every team needs one of those. So um, shout out to him. Great career at West Virginia. Moving on to 22, we got Skylar Howard. Skylar Howard passed for over 3,000 yards and 33 touchdowns at Riverside City College just one season before transferring to West Virginia. He played at West Virginia from 2014 to 2016. And during his time here, you know, Skylar was just a winner. He compiled a 19 and 9 record, which includes a 10 win season. In 2016, not only was he a proven winner, but Skyler put up some nice numbers while only being the primary starter for two seasons. His 7,300 passing yards ranked fourth all time at West Virginia, and his 60 passing touchdowns ranked third. Skyler also ran for 16 career rushing touchdowns, and so his 76 total touchdowns are only behind Pat White and Geno Smith. He is third all-time in total touchdowns. Um, I didn't even include all of his single season and single game rankings. It's just shocking um, how high. He's like top three in almost every category that you look at at all-time at West Virginia. So, um, you know, Skyler took a lot of flack while he was here. Um but, you know, looking at what he's accomplished, I think it's time for Mountaineer fans to truly give this man his due. Yeah, for sure. You know, I feel like our ranking here, um, I think it's fair. Uh, I can definitely see where some people will complain, especially because he's over guys like Rashid Marshall. But yeah, he was really good. And looking back at, at it in hindsight, you know, 19 to 9 is nothing to shake your head at, you know, like you said, a 10 win season, he had an eight and nine win season, I think in there too. He was just really, really good. Um, and he really only started two seasons. He did start, I think two games his sophomore year when Clint Trickett went down. So he did all of these, these stats, um, with the, and only two seasons and two games. Um, you know, his best year was his senior year too. So he capped off a, pretty good career with that with 3,300 passing yards, 26 touchdowns, 
463 rushing yards and 10 rushing touchdowns. He also finished his career with over a thousand rushing yards, which I thought was interesting um, because, you you know, he could run around a little bit, but you never really thought of him as someone who is, you know, making most of his yardage that way. Um, and like you said, the record books are just littered with him, whether it comes from most offensive yards, most touchdowns responsible for, whether it be in a single season, a career, a single game, he is everywhere across WV's record book, and he's going to stay there for a while um, because I don't see anyone uh, coming in anytime soon that can really challenge that. Um, now, unfortunately, he was a smaller quarterback, so you know he really didn't get any looks from the NFL, really none for the CFL either. But um, where he made his legend, I guess you could call it, was in Japan. Um, he was uh, the quarterback for the Obik Seagulls. Um, and he led them to the, a championship in their in his first year there in 2018, um, earning them a Pearl Bowl, which is the Japanese Football League's championship. Um, and he also won the Pearl Bowl MVP that game too. Um, his stats weren't great. I think it was like seven for 14 for like 140 yards. So I kind of want to watch um, a game to see how different it is because that seems, you know, for the score of the game, it's it seems like not super impressive, but. Um, they could have some different rules similar to the CFL, but you know, Skyler was just he was just a gamer. And like you said, I think it's time for WU fans to look at him differently because I think we were definitely way too hard on him um towards the end of his career. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And um you brought it up. He was a gamer. You know, when I think of Skylar Howard, I just think of a guy with a lot of heart. He, you know, like you said, with those rushing stats, he liked to tuck the ball and run a lot. And when he did, he never really shied away from contact. He was he was just a tough guy. He, he would take big shots and just hop right back up. And so um, he just has that classic mentality that West Virginia fans loved. And um, yeah, you know, in hindsight, I, I wish we would have gave the guy more love when he was here and show him how, you know, appreciated you know, we should have been, we really were spoiled. And, um, you know, looking back on it, uh, he was a great player. Of course, the memorable cactus bowl versus Arizona state. He threw for over 500 yards and five touchdowns that game. And, uh, we have won a bowl game since then, the Liberty bowl. That was our last bowl win. But, um, to me, that game wasn't super memorable, but man, that cactus bowl, that that'll be a bowl victory that I think West Virginia fans will remember for many years. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that's what I had as his memorable moment, because, you know, I think that was just, uh, you know, his his capstone, basically, for WVU. Um, you know, he set a, I think he was top three in single game yardage, passing yardage all time at WVU or top five or something like that after that game. And the five touchdown passes, I mean, this was a game where they had Wendell Smallwood and Arizona State held him to, I think it was like 17 carries, 72 yards and no touchdowns. And we all know how good Wendell was that year. He had over 1,500 yards rushing. Um, so Skyler was really carrying the brunt of the load. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, also don't remember, you know, Gary Jennings and David Stills and guys like that really kind of being productive with Skyler. You know, people remember them for Will Greer and the numbers they put up with him, but it all really started with Skyler. Um, I think Gary Jennings in that game had a 58 yard touchdown catch. Um, and Dekeel shorts had two touchdown catches that game. And we've already reviewed him on the list. So both of them on the list actually. So, um, you know, 
the, the players that Will Greer played with started with Skyler and uh, he inherited a good crew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I'll always remember is those bombs he had to Shelton Gibson. Um, Skyler had a really good deep ball. Like um, m- mainly people would knock him for his intermediate short passing game, but um, he did throw one of the better deep balls that we've seen at West Virginia in the past decade. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and he was, he, he was a, you know, a gunslinger, you know, to some, to some form, because if you look at that um, completion percentage, it wasn't the greatest, you know, I think his senior year was best at around 61%, but before that he was around the mid fifties, which is a little shaky. Um, but he made do with it. You know, he won games. And when you have a running game like that, the year before that, where he was around, I think 55% completion percentage, his junior year, you had Wendell Smallwood carrying the ball and the season that he had, which was one of the best rushing seasons of all time at WVU, you can afford to be a little bit more of a gambler, push the ball downfield because the safeties are walking up. Um, and he made the adjust adjustment the following year where he, you know, was a little bit more conservative. He didn't have Wendell Smallwood anymore. And he pushed his completion percentage up six points, which is incredible. You just don't see that. And he was still, you know, pushing the ball downfield to guys like Shelton Gibson. He was still spreading the ball around. And he still relied a lot on Dekeel Shorts, who we like, like we said, you know, reviewed him already with all the catches he had, how clutch he was on third down. But, you know, he just he ran Dana's offense in a way that I don't think we've seen it run because he was more of like a, a gambler than, um, you know, Gino, who was much more of a, you know, system quarterback, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, we're just a couple years away from the 10 year anniversary of that 10 win football team. And I would love for them to bring that team out. And because uh, I got a feeling that the West Virginia fans would give him a big pop. And I know that would mean a lot to him. Absolutely. Yeah, I know. Um, he, I think he felt pretty scorned after he left with the way that fans treated him, um, which I still don't understand to this day. Um, you know, I know he was kind of cocky, but you have to be to be a quarterback. So um, you know, I think it's time to welcome Skylar back and really give him the love that we, he, he didn't get for the past almost 10 years. Yeah. And just following him on social media these past few years, it does seem like, um, you know, fans have mended that, that bridge. And he has had a lot of nice things to say about West Virginia and their fans. So, um, but yeah, like I said, if we could just get him back in the stadium and give him a big pop, I think that would be, you know, the official end to that topic. For sure. All right. Moving on to number 21, we got Jamile Adai. Jamile Adai played at West Virginia from 2001 to 2005. He was a starting safety in 39 of his 42 career games, and he racked up some impressive stats. According to WVUSports.com, Jamile totaled 253 tackles and eight interceptions in his career. He even returned one back for a touchdown against Pitt his senior season. So he's a former two-time big all Big East honoree, and he returned to coach at West Virginia during the 2007, 2019, and 2020 seasons. Yeah, Jamila Dye is one of the first players that I really – you know, kind of, I think it was him and Grant Wiley were the two guys who I really kind of fell in love with watching them. Um, you know, that those two and Avon Coburn were kind of my first real, like, vivid memories of WU sports. And Jameel was just such a talented player. I mean, he played free safety, so 
that's not a sexy position. That's a lot of playing center field, but he could tackle. He could play defense. He was super rock solid. And he, you know, I remember watching him and I didn't watch a lot of football, you know, other football teams play. And I'm like, you know, this guy's going to play in the NFL. He's, he's going to be great, you know, just watching him play because he was so good. Um, you know, he, he was a four-year starter. You, know, you mentioned all the career tackles, but he also had 25 pass breakups, which some sites reference as fifth all time. I couldn't confirm that. I'm just reiterating what I read online. Yep, um, I saw that too. Awesome. Good. Yeah, I'm glad I wasn't the only one because <laughs> sometimes I get a little iffy on uh, <laughs> what the sites report because I read, uh, um, I forget what team site it was on, but they said, no, it was on a, a WVU gazette.com i guess i'm calling them out now that said uh a dies 253 career tackles were fifth all time at wvu and i was like no <laughs> nah. no not include not not close no offense to jamile but yeah um but yeah i mean one of my favorite players um and you know i know he's active on social media he's a big wvu fan um so it's great to have him on the list and it's great to have him this high. I mean, I wish I could have him a little bit higher, but we're really getting into the, the thick of things here. And you know, the one thing I learned about Jamile today is that you pronounce his name Jamile, not Jamil or Jamal. Um, Tyler and I were actually sending YouTube videos back and forth. Um, and my mind was kind of blown by the way people were pronouncing his name because for my entire life, I called him Jamil. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we always called him Jamil. We started looking up highlights, and Tony Caridi called him Jamal during his playing days. But then we happened to stumble upon a YouTube video that when he came back to coach here at West Virginia, um, Tony Caridi was interviewing him, and they had a whole conversation about how they mispronounced his name during his entire playing career. (laughs) I I guess you pronounce his name Jamile. So uh, we're going to give the man respect, and from now on, we'll call him Jamal Adai, I guess. Um, but to, to discuss some more things that he's accomplished, he was also third in single-season pass breakups. He had 16 in the 2002 season, and that's third all-time at West Virginia. And, of course, um, you know, just recently he won a championship with the Georgia Bulldogs being a coach for them. And he just was hired recently as the secondary coach at Miami for the Miami Hurricanes. Um, I, I know some West Virginia fans are getting a little upset with them because it seems like some of our big names are going to, they're transferring to wherever he's at and they're blaming a die for that. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily feel that way. I feel like those guys just enjoyed playing under him. And so... You know, they're going to him. I don't necessarily think he's he's stealing them. You know, we've, we've had a lot of guys leave recently. So um, I, I would love it if one day, like we said earlier, if if a die former player comes back because he's clearly a good coach. He was a good coach when he was here at West Virginia. He did a nice job at Georgia. And uh, I'm sure he's going to do a great job while he's down in Miami. Oh, for sure. I mean, and he has some serious cred as a recruiter. I mean, he's considered one of the top recruiters in the country. And when you're going to Miami, I mean, that name still carries weight, even though their success was over two decades ago now. Um, It's still the U, and there's still a lot of talent down there. I mean, you could still bring up the name Ray Lewis and um, Sean Taylor and, you know, numerous other guys that played on that defense. Um, You know, Warren Sapp, you know, and people will know who those guys are because they're on TV. So, um, 
Jamal is is extremely talented, and I wish we could have kept him here at WVU, but you know it, it's hard to pass up some of the opportunities you're getting from these bigger schools because I was reading that you know while he was at WVU he was making like three hundred and seventy five thousand dollars a year, and at Georgia the minimum uh, assistant coach position was making four hundred thousand dollars a year, so I'm sure he was making probably over a half a million, if not more, a year, and that's a big jump. I mean, for a school like WVU that doesn't have the donors of a school in the sec that's tough so i don't really hold anything against jamal for that um you know but uh yeah he's gonna have a great career and i hope somehow some way again he ends up back at wvu because he he does love the university and you know i don't hold anything against the players who are leaving because i kind of use the analogy of let's say you get hired by a manager that you really connect with at work and that manager leaves for another job and the new manager is kind of like you don't know where you stand with them. You don't have the same rapport. You're not going to hang around. You're going to go somewhere else. And if your old manager will have you wherever they're at now, then you go take that job. And that's kind of what the transfer portal is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. And, um, you know, if coach Lensley, Leslie, sorry, ever gets a head coaching job because he does seem to have head coach written all over him. Mm-hmm. I could see that happening in the next five years or so. Um, you know, maybe we could bring, maybe by that time, Adai has a little experience calling plays. Maybe we could bring him back to be the D coordinator down the road. Who knows? I'm sure um, our paths will cross again one day. So uh, big shout out to Adai, though. Successful player and a very successful coach as well. Oh, for sure. All right. Well, that's all I got on him. Do you have any highlights or anything like that? Yeah, so uh, you already kind of alluded to it, but the pick six versus Pitt on senior night, I don't think you can really top that. Um, senior night, Pitt, pick six. Doesn't Can't get do much better than that, man. <laughs> Short and sweet. Yeah, there you go. I like it. So um, that's it for us, guys. Uh, this was a fun episode. I hope you enjoyed it, and we uh, will be recording next week. Hopefully, we're discussing a K-State win next week, and um, thank you very much for listening, guys. We'll catch you next time. Yeah, thanks, everyone, and hopefully next Tuesday we can celebrate a Big 12 uh, tourney championship and an NCAA berth. Knock on wood. (laughs) There you go. Later, guys. Bye, everyone.